This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 564 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Richard Browning. Now, quite a while ago, I saw a video that went viral of a man in a jet suit acting as a paramedic in the hills of the UK, and I was blown away by the potential of this technology. Well, I had the absolute honor of talking to that man, Richard Browning, on this conversation. So we discuss a host of topics from his early ambition to join the military, how he found himself trading oil in the city of London, joining the Royal Marines Reserves and becoming a commando challenging common thinking when it came to inventing his jet suit and the incredible military and first responder applications that this could bring to our communities. Before we get to this amazing conversation, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback. I do love reading your feedback and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of 563 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So that being said, I introduce to you Richard Browning. Enjoy. So Richard, I want to start by saying thank you so much for being so generous with your time today. I know how incredibly busy you are. As we are talking now, you are in you know, a, a, an amazing room full of all kinds of technological gadgets and you were just on a phone call. So I truly, truly appreciate you carving out an hour for the audience today. No worries. No, pleasure to be here. So where on planet Earth are we finding you right now? Salisbury in Wiltshire, uh, of all places. That's where our uh, development lab is, and uh, it's nicely not far from my house as well, so it makes a change from the uh, commute into the city of London that I did for 10 years. Brilliant. I'm very familiar with that. I grew up in uh, Corsham, outside Bath, so just down the road. Oh, uh, right, okay. Oh, very good. Yeah, it's a lovely part of the world. It is just, um, yeah, it's a bit of a long journey when you're working in Canary Wharf and the east side of London. Uh, but yeah, it's lovely. 
Brilliant. All right. Well, I like to start at the very beginning and work chronologically. So tell me where you were born and just tell me a little bit about your family dynamics, what your family did, or in this case, your even your, your grandparents and a very interesting occupation. And then um, how many siblings? Yeah. So, uh, well, easy one, no siblings. Uh, that covers that off nice and easily. Uh, but um, a virtual um, surrogate, uh, about 300, because I went to boarding school from the age of nine. So that sort of dramatically filled that um Part of my life. Um, yeah, so I was born and born in Sherborne in Dorset. I went to boarding school uh, in Taunton in Somerset. Uh, my father was an aeronautical engineer and maverick inventor, creator, designer. I used to spend a lot of time with him building things in his workshop. And my mother was quite actually a uh, senior um, uh, HR professional, actually in the city. She did very well in the era she was in, which I don't think was quite as open as as it is even now. And not that it's uh, all the way uh, as far as it should be yet. But um, uh, yeah, and I, um, I I grew up, I suppose, with a passion for kind of building things, making things, taking things apart, um, engineering things. I unfortunately um, experienced uh, the downsides of entrepreneurialism in the sense that my father left his day job to pursue uh, his own business. He pioneered mountain bike suspension. He was definitely one of the pioneers of mountain bike suspension, uh, but taught me accidentally one of the uh, lessons in life about making, I suppose, innovative risk-taking ventures at least recoverable if they don't work out, as frankly, they most of the time don't work out. Um, and cut a long story short, a long, rather miserable story. At the age of 15, he took his own life, as in I was 15, uh, which, yeah, was a pretty miserable time in my life. Uh, but I, since then, was set about on a course of, I suppose, just embracing every challenge in life, feeling like one of the worst things that can happen to you had already happened. So what else could go wrong? Um, and yeah, and just took on everything from deciding that I wanted a career in the military through to uh, taking on all sorts of adventurous training things, uh, you know, all sorts of sports that formerly I was very uh, intimidated by, I think. And um, yeah, and, and to conclude swiftly the last 20 odd years, I mean, I, I didn't end up joining the forces. I spent a lot of time at university doing military stuff. I uh, had a place at Sandhurst to go and do officer training, but decided to go and pursue, I suppose, the entrepreneurial side of my brain, um, you know, and frankly, money-making as well, ended up as an oil trader in the city of London for BP uh, for best part of 16 years, which was, in hindsight, very much the same behaviour set of taking calculated risks, a big portfolio of them, and quickly extracting from the ones that don't work and enjoying the ones that do, but, um, you know, treading that entrepreneurial creative journey. But my real passion was, I suppose, always going to be that making and building process. And that's sort of what I've ended up doing in the last five years with gravity, but with a big injection of that military ethos, because in the end I did join the military, but only part-time I was in the Royal Marines Reserve for about six years alongside that day job. So those are all the formative parts of what I've later gone on and done, I think. Now back to your early life. Um, a big, big topic that comes up over and over again on this show is mental health. And there's a lot of people listening from the military first responders. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, that is kind of up until we were you know, probably in our 40s, it was kind of frowned upon. It was still in the shadows. When you look back now, what were elements you think that contributed to your father getting to that point? Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's all the things that were poorly understood and poorly respected at the time, which at least were getting better nowadays. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was a pretty, pretty heady cocktail. I mean, you, 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 you know, you have to have a lot of self-belief and drive and ambition to go down that journey, especially in the you know, in the 19, late 1970s, 1980s, um, and leave a perfectly well-paid job, believing you've got a great idea that can be a success. Um, you know, I, I think he had all the engine oodles of the engineering skill and design and creative skill. But what I've, you know, learned over the years, not least running Gravity, but even before then, was that that's not enough, unfortunately. You know, you've got to have a huge amount of huge diversity of skills, people skills and business skills, and, uh, you know, a lot of experience of spotting all the pitfalls that are on the pathway to trying to build a successful business. Yeah. And he ended up, you know, borrowing money from friends and family, particularly family, you know, and then he added that pressure onto the situation and then he got screwed over by a few business partners. Um, you know, and I think it's just one of those things. I, I, I certainly have experienced a taste of that same mindset of, feeling like everything's against you and everything's just going wrong. Um, you know, and it just drags you down a dark place. And um, yeah, it, it's, it's an absolute tragedy that it, that it's, it, it's becomes a rationalization for taking the ultimate step, which um, yeah, it's terrible, but you know, it, it, I, I feel like what we've gone on and done with gravity. I mean, he was an absolute obsessive over all things flight and aviation and, 
the human capability element of this as well was something he was really passionate about. So in a weird way, this is God, we've gone on, I've gone on to go and celebrate a lot of what he would have enjoyed. It's just a pity he can't be here to, to enjoy it in a lot of ways. Absolutely. I'm sure he's very, very proud of you. Mm-hmm. So with the athleticism portion, um, you know, that's obviously a big kind of underbelly to the creation of what you ended up doing. Um, when you were at school age, what were you playing back then? Were you a sportsman? No, weirdly. I mean, I, I've gone on to do everything from ultra marathons to triathlons um, to calisthenics training, rock climbing, canoeing, all these things. But it all came about after I was 15, after that experiencing that tragedy. Before then, I just wasn't, frankly, I wasn't great at doing anything that I was sort of organized or told to, to do. And I never have been great at that. So as soon as, you know, you, you, there's an organized cross-country run, you know, uh, and you're cold and wet, even before you start, you know, it's hard to convince yourself of why you should join the crowd and do that. It's funny. I've gone on to probably run tens of thousands, maybe even more than that of miles under my own steam because I absolutely love it. And it's a critical part of my own mental health of going for a very long runs. Um, but as soon as you're told to do it, yeah, my mindset doesn't work very well with that. I'm immediately questioning why. Um, so yeah, I really wasn't a very sporty kid at all, uh, but just embraced so much of it after that tragedy, because I suppose I just opened up the bucket of all the things that had scared or intimidated me up to that point. Um, yeah, you could, you could argue it's kind of running away and trying to distract myself. Maybe it was, but it sort of worked out pretty well and I don't feel too unhinged. Um, so it's, it's worked out pretty well as a coping mechanism, I think. Absolutely. Well, I think that's it. There's a definitely a healthy element to sport as long as it's not obsessive, you know, and so if it's taking up all your time, then yeah, maybe there's a distraction element, but going for a run, I think is one of the most therapeutic things that people can do. Oh, massively. I, I mean, it's, I really notice if I've gone a couple of days without doing any kind of training, particularly running, just because it's so quick and, uh, you know, such great bang for your buck really in terms of tying yourself out. Um, yeah. And I, I mean, I, the longest ultra marathons I did, I think 86 miles of Ridgeway in the UK was the longest one I did. And, and yeah, and I just thoroughly enjoyed not necessarily every minute of those kind of races. Uh, but I thoroughly enjoyed the journey inside your own mind that you go on when you, when you put your body through that kind of thing. And they're much the same with triathlons and things like that. So yeah, that's been a big part of my, um, I suppose my process over the years. Uh, and in a way it would have been interesting to go back in time and, um, I don't, I don't, my father was pretty outdoorsy and sporting kind of thing, but I, I don't remember him ever doing that kind of training. Again, it wasn't really the thing that people did those days. I mean, there wasn't really gyms, was there? Um, you know, in the 1970s and 80s, I mean, I suppose a select few would go and do training, but it wasn't as mass marketed as now. Um, so, yeah, I think that would have helped him a lot if, he, if that had been available back in those days. Yeah. Now, with you, you talked about being in boarding school. I heard someone the other day, I forget who it was now, but it was an Englishman talking about our school system not exactly inspiring that shoot for the stars mentality. And when I think of my senior school time, it was a lot of gearing your crap, you know, never going to amount to anything, not the most inspiring speeches. And they were, they were comparing it to America, the kind of the, you can be Mm. anything, do anything element. What factor did that school play? Was, was there, was there a kind of seed set by any of those teachers that you had, or did that happen later on in life? Yeah, I, I mean, my school, I think, I mean, it, it was quite tough in the early days. It went through a period. I mean, I remember when the Child Act came in. <laughs> I remember being given paperwork to sort of contribute towards the study that led to that. Because, you know, it, to be clear, my schooling, it was all good. I, I would say I describe it as all good, solid schoolboy antics in terms of, you know, gangish kind of um, tomfoolery and uh, good, clean violence <laughs> uh, where, you know, School children. I, I, I'm amazed at seeing my two, my own kids. I mean, my own kids are both about to be 14 and 15. Well, one of them is due to be 15 very soon and the other one's still 13 and heading towards 14. Um, and it's amazing how they, they happily and joyously engage with kids older and younger than them. We'd never do that in my school. It was just not a thing. It was just, uh, it does make me realize how kind of behind, you know, we were back in my schooling. But as I say, at the time, yeah, it was tough. It was amazing when you got home for a holiday, having been at school for several months, just the extent to which your shoulders would drop and you lower your guard and realize the kind of armor you'd have to have on the whole time to just kind of exist uh, successfully, uh, which again, is shouldn't be like that. But I guess the unintended outcome of that is you hopefully, and probably nine out of 10 kids that go through that come out probably stronger i think the one that doesn't is probably permanently damaged so i'm not advocating the structure at all but yeah i think i it toughened me up a lot and made me a lot more self-reliant um 
but uh, yeah, but uh, the education side was great. I was very lucky that it was a it was a solid school, and I think particularly for me, I mean, I'm mildly mildly dyslexic. I'm pretty rubbish at reading and writing and stuff. Um, uh, and uh, you know, I, I I feel I take quite a long time to absorb a new concept because I ask just like my eldest son now does and drives me mad. Uh, asks all the peripheral tangential questions that just seem irrelevant, and yet once you've covered them off, you are you know, ordained with a degree of understanding about that particular subject that allows you to question and challenge and take it further. Um, again, this is all just me speaking in hindsight, realizing my behavior set and watching my son. Um, it is flipping annoying if you're a teacher or a peer of that person, because you just sound like you're slow and not getting it and needing more help. But the outcome is you can, you're not just learning by rote, which I'm rubbish at, um, but you understand the, the matrix behind the thing you're supposed to be learning and allows you to, you know, open up the world, you know, to a great extent. Um, so my school was very tolerant as best as schools could be of that kind of attitude. So I've got a lot to be grateful for that school really on the education side of things, but I don't really remember the sort of tub thumping. You can do anything kind of thing. No, that was, that's terribly un-British, isn't yeah, it? No, it is. I, don't, <laughs> I, don't, I don't remember that from my school, but I don't feel I lacked that. I think, I think it's, it, <laughs> It's funny, I've just I literally had, as I mentioned before we started this, I've had a US film crew here. We have them kind of all the time, not just US ones, but it was this week a US one. And we were just having lunch talking about the difference in culture. And it's it's funny. I mean, having that woo-ha, high five, everything's possible, classic, stereotypical American attitude. I, you know, the positive side is, wow. I mean, you know, if in doubt it's going to work, let's go do it. And it's that nation building, especially West Coast attitude that has led to all the great technology successes coming out of, you know, that part of the world, um, all the big tech giants pretty much have come out of there. Um, the only downside is, and I'm always fascinated this from a military point of view, is it does set yourself, you'll set yourself up for a bit of a fall when the reality hits. Um, the only positive attitude to the British way of doing things, where you're kind of skeptical and miserable and pretty unsure it's going to work <laughs> in the first place, is that you're pleasantly surprised versus bitterly disappointed you know you're already in the bitterly disappointment expectation <laughs> um, which i i feel characteristically wise or personality wise i'm kind of happier starting from that point and then surprise myself and people around us uh but i guess as a nation we probably need a few more notches of can do not least since brexit yeah no that, that's probably where the the phrase ah oh, came from <laughs> yeah. a surprise that something actually worked when you set your bar incredibly low <laughs> yeah and, and it's and it's also i mean it's not just the uk i think it's a european thing as well and i think it comes from um the history i think i think i mean these americans we have for lunch um the, the, we just took them around Salisbury cathedral which is 850 years old and and, it, and i mean it would be a challenge to build that thing today for not less than probably three or four billion it's an amazing feat of human creativity and engineering and uh you know and that's been there for nearly a thousand years um when you're surrounded by a culture and an infrastructure that's been like that, I think it's very easy to sit back and look at anything new and go, ah, you know, we've seen it all before. I think we're fine. Whereas you turn up on the East Coast of the US 200 years ago, you'd starve to death if you didn't look after yourself. And the real crazies didn't stop there. That wasn't mad enough. They carried on going and they carried on fighting their way across, you know, an amazing wild territory and only stopped when they hit the sea. And so that culture of can do, you know, just get on with it and look positively and survive is still in the West Coast, you know, mentality. I hugely respect it, but it does. It's not all positive. It does have quite a few downsides as well, but it's fascinating to observe it. Yeah. Now, what I've, I've observed just from especially this last couple of years, it's been very eye opening, just what we've seen. And what made me start this podcast was kind of the same mindset that you're talking about. The kind of reverse engineer, get to the roots just because people are told you it's the way it's done doesn't mean it's the right way. Um, but, uh, this kind of belief in chess beating as well, like we're the greatest country in the world, because there's no better way to completely come to a standstill than to assume that you're the best at everything. So having some humility, I think, with that mindset and realize that there are an incredible elements of every single country around the world that do certain things incredibly well and knowledge share from each other. That I think is how we move the needle and, and maybe take one edge off the, you know, the kind of nationalism versus patriotism, I say, and, you know, mm -hmm. and actually trying to elevate every single country. Yeah. So uh, you make me think that actually, I mean, one of the most innovative nations by pretty much any measure you can think of is Israel. So what better way let's, you know, dodge the awkward politics of the poor nations that were there before that. Well, I think it's us, isn't it? It's before Britain created that country. Um, uh, let's just park all that for a moment. You know, that country exists and is extremely successful. I think it generates more patents uh, than any other country in the world other than the US. And yet it's what, like 
3 million people or something. It's, uh, China is behind it. I mean, it's insane. Uh, but if you were to de- develop an innovative community, what better ingredients than go and take disparate, persecuted peoples from four corners of the planet, not least after the Second World War and all those horrors, give them a common connection in the form of their religion, give them a piece of land that is pretty damn impossible to survive on, surround them by people who hate them and don't want them there and say, right, go figure, go work it out. Because if you don't, you're not going to survive and look at how bad things were before you got there. You know, you've got no alternative. It is a proper wartime kind of spirit. And then kind of even better than that, their culture is, you know, the national service. You put all their young people in, um, you know, basically in a real trench with real people trying to hurt them. You know, it's pretty hairy in that place of the world, you know, part of the world from time to time, uh, where you all plot and plan as late 20s, early Uh, sorry, it's late uh, teens, early 20s people about what you're going to do when you get out and what tech firm you're going to form and what unicorn billion dollar company you're going to create. So you end up with a network formed in adversity of, you know, amazing people. I mean, and there it is. I mean, that's how you go and generate a really dynamic, innovative culture. Uh, You know, and and, and you look at, you know, older cultures like the UK and Europe and, you know, you don't have so, so, you know, so much of that. We're lucky we live in a very relatively safe and comfortable place um, where we don't have that adversity, you know, I'm very pleased we do, you know, have that uh, security, um, uh, you know, and and we don't have that um, recent memory of having to form something out of nothing like the, you know, American culture and like the Israeli culture. So it is a challenge. We do need to, uh, I mean, I, my personal, again, I don't want to drift into politics too much. My personal attitude was that, you know, I think Brexit uh, it is a challenge, let's put it that way, because you are you 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 bear you rarely create more by cutting yourself off from people, information, inspiration, ideas, and trading partners. But hey, now we've done it. Let's use that as a self-generated form of adversity to now realize no one's going to come helping us. We've got to go and form a little bit of that, a pinch of that wartime spirit of uh, looking after ourselves and and in generate you know generating a, a whole new realm of of uh, British innovation and entrepreneurialism. Yeah, I agree completely, and I think um, you know, that shared suffering element, whether it's a you know selection process for a military organization, or whether it's you know seven seven or World War Two, or nine eleven. I mean, we see that band people together. What's interesting mm-hmm. about the Israeli, I think, the military philosophy, if I'm not mistaken, the way they're trained is your buddies, and your whole mm-hmm. goal is to make sure that your partner, your friend, your buddy makes it home. So rather than it mm-hmm. being about you. It's about someone else, which I think is a very powerful concept as well. Yeah, we, which is the the core founding element, maybe not expressed as clearly and eloquently as that, but is the core founding element of every force I've ever worked with. It boils down, you know, right down from below section to fire team down to yeah the buddy system, and it's always the anecdote you get from every combat situation. You're not fighting for queen and country, or even you know even or anything. You're just keeping each other alive, right down to that individual buddy system. So yeah. Yeah, the fact the Israelis have homed in on that is, um, yeah, it's powerful. Absolutely. Well, thanks for that perspective. Um, so talk to me about what made you choose going to the city, working in the, the oil industry, and then at what point during that time did you decide to actually join the reserves? It's kind of an interesting parallel that you had to yeah. wearing a suit in the city. Yeah, so I, I always knew I'd regret not joining the forces full-time, uh, but also having spent uh, four I was actually at university for four years, um, very intensively doing officer training course stuff. And I don't mean to suggest that officer training course stuff is a good substitute for a full-time military career, not in the slightest, but it did spend, I did spend a lot of time immersed in that culture um, and increasingly felt that I wanted to also, frankly, go and earn some good money. I, I An outcome of my father's situation was, you know, we were in a pretty poor financial situation to say the least. In fact, that's a very <laughs> downplaying situation. It was dire. Um, left me with a big mental scar and an, and an obsession with making sure I never experienced that. And if I was to have a family and I met my wife, my still wife at university um, over 20 years ago, that um, I was never going to allow that to happen. And actually, whilst the military ticked so many boxes in terms of that personal challenge and camaraderie and purpose and um, yeah, yeah, all of that, it, it was always a bit of a struggle um to also scratch that entrepreneurial questioning you know, put your hand up in the back of the classroom and say well hang on a minute what about this you know I, I fully appreciate that is an awkward mindset for all but elite and special forces because you're supposed to shut up and do what you're told and not keep questioning and come out with other bright smart ideas um so i did on balance think i better go and really pursue that and at the same time earn some money but within literally 18 months i was 
miserably missing what I had not gone after. So when I did a bit of hunting around in London and found there's a couple of options, but I was particularly enamored by the Royal Marines because of their obviously reputation, but also the Royal Marines Reserve. Unlike the Territorial Army, at least at the time, I don't want to dish what their process is now because I can't claim to be an expert, but at least then and still the Royal Marines, you have to go through and still get your green beret, your green lid uh, by still passing the same commando course as the regulars, except with the added, I'd argue, and you know, I've had quite a few regular Royal Marines uh, kind of validate this, that with the added trauma of being constantly dipped in and out of civilian life rather than living down at Limston for a year, which is pretty hard, I'm not going to dish that, but uh, being, you know, you get to a Friday evening, having flogged your guts out for, you know, 11 hour days on the trading floor, you're shattered. You don't fancy getting off at Bermondsey tube station, packing your gear in that changing room. I can still smell if I close my eyes and remember it. Uh, and then spending the whole time being beasted around and, you know, deliberately treated like shit, as I completely get the whole point, um, until Sunday evening, uh, when you've then got to go back to work again. Uh, that's really hard because you're just torturing your brain. You know, you just, as, as you know, as you know, um, you're, you're just fantasizing about something like a seat, a chair, a comfy chair, you know what I mean? Um, which at least you get back at the desk, but, um, yeah, constantly being moved between those two worlds is horrendous, which is why at least at the time out of our 80 blokes intake, it was only me. And I think two others that got through, uh, some years later, cause it takes a couple of years doing it as a reservist. Anyway, it, it very much scratched my itch. I'm very proud of the fact that I dragged my ass through the whole process. Um, my biggest regret in life, honestly, is that just at the point I was going to go on Optelic, whichever it was, I can't remember now, uh, with those two buddies and a few others I'd, I'd got to know very well. Uh, my eldest son, due to be 15 very soon, was uh, due. Um, and so I felt I, I was in this awkward position where, you know, my wife would have let me go, but I did feel kind of the wrong thing to go and leave her to have our son by herself with no family in London when I was you know, volunteering to go and potentially endanger myself while she was going through that. So I don't know, life doesn't always line up. Uh, but if I just capped off the experience with that, then that would have been kind of ideal. But then again, I'd probably be looking at the next challenge I couldn't have done. Anyway, that that was um, that was good. But, but as I say, actually, whilst corporate experience, you know, sure, lots of people listening to this um, have endured or are enduring the challenges working for a big organization. Yes, it's probably relatively safe and secure, but it drives you bonkers with process and slowness of pace and lack of innovative spirit and all these kind of things. Um, I percolated towards the most innovative dynamic part I could find, which was trading. And there were a bunch of 20-somethings in brightly colored shirts making millions of dollars by making instant decisions and taking risk and moving big ships around the world. That was really you know inspiring to me and i i forced my way in that direction and i found it as an outlet towards my put your hand up and say hang on a minute what about this you know behavior set uh which turned out to be a great fit and um yeah i i experienced some amazing uh opportunities there it was still very frustrating because you were still part of the big mothership but um it did arm me with a bunch of skills which have been very useful in this unusual second career of mine now well, what's fascinating about that is <clears throat> excuse me when i um I've spoken to some of the the special operations, you know, men, mainly men on this particular show. Um, one of the things they say is the hardest part is when they are given a break, when they are allowed to sleep for X amount of hours to, to be able to, you know, take your kit off. It's putting the kit back on again. So I can mm -hmm. only imagine you physically leave where you're training, go wear a suit for a week and then have to come back. And then, as you said, dive back in. I can see why the attrition rate is so, so, so high because that takes us, you know, a deep, deep level of discipline and drive to be able to go from that comfortable nine to five back to the misery of Salisbury Plain or, you know, wherever you're training at the time. Yeah, it, it was just such a different set of challenges. One minute, you know, you're, you're in a, you're in an office where guess what? There's a lovely, you know, very smart um, air conditioning system that keeps the temperature absolutely perfect at 20 degrees centigrade or whatever, you know. And, and I deliberately mentioned that because that, that thought has not gone through the minds of any of your 800 colleagues across that trading floor. And yet you're sitting there on Monday morning going, wow, that's amazing. You know, I can actually feel my hands. Um, and when I want, I can walk over there and get a clean glass of water if I feel just even the slightest bit thirsty. Uh, and then I decide, you know, if I want to just sit down on a comfy seat that supports my back and I can just sit here. And that is, as far as I'm concerned, utter heaven compared to what I've endured over the weekend. So, you know, and yet somebody's, you know, I've got to go into a shitty meeting with some senior manager who's really upset with some, you know, decision from last week. And actually you sit there going, you know what, <laughs> you know, you're not trying to punch me in the face. You're not going to make me stand neck, neck deep in that cold water for three hours. I don't really care. <laughs> you know, so actually weirdly, 
it would arm you with a wonderful disregard for the sort of Monday morning. Yes, you were absolutely dog tired. Um, and I used to cycle commute a lot as well, and a very long cycle commute, which was a ridiculous trauma as well. Trying to do that after a long weekend is great training. I think I'd fall apart nowadays. But anyway, um, it was the it was the diving into that world after you know in, it, being in corporate office mode of managing office politics and you know financial decisions to then going and worrying about laying your gear out right and you know doing night nav exercises. And it was a real interesting mental stretch. But yes, it's a it's a terribly inefficient process because you lose so many people. But also physically, I was very impressed always with how the Royal Marines one minute are asking you to bang out pull-ups and the next minute, you know, be a junior level ultramarathon runner in boots, you know, and wet kit. That's quite a weird spread of skills, right? Um, you know, lots of military units err on the side of endurance, fine, but not necessarily asking you to do all the gym stuff as well. So it's kind of a, a, a wonderful find your weakness process and then beat you over the head with it until you can also make that not a weakness. <laughs> Absolutely. And then that, that kind of parallel universe is why I found that with the fire service and I do stunts on the side. So I would go, you know, just come off shift and seen some horrendous thing. And then that yeah. same day go to, you know, a, a green room full of performers and, you know, someone's costume isn't quite right and they're queening out. And I'm like, for fuck's sake, I was just a few yeah. hours ago, I was cutting someone out of a car, you know, like you said, the, the, the kind of, um, the baseline of what, is stressful what is bad. Yeah, yeah totally. It, it is fascinating. If it's not driving you mad and you are able to handle it, I think it makes life all the richer because you can look at everything with a different perspective. You know, it's the opposite of just closing down your life experience to a tiny existence and over obsessing. I mean, I'm going to get kind of rude now. You know, I think it's a normal trait as you get older, you know, as your sort of parents' generation get older and older, their world perspective collapses, but they still apply the same stress to what's remaining in it. So you obsess over what exact time in three weeks' time are you coming for Sunday lunch, you know, it, you know, to the minute. Well, you know, we don't worry about that because we're busy running busy lives. But it's funny how if you if you broaden that, on the other hand, it's amazing how you become ultimately a lot more chilled out in the most extreme scenarios. Absolutely. Now, I want to get to obviously the, the entrepreneurial process. But before we do, just quickly, one thing that has baffled me as someone who has zero education in this field, um, you see the petrol prices fluctuate. And over here, it's blaming the the president at the time oh obama made the you know the petrol expensive or whatever with you having an insight into actual pricing in that industry what actually affects these the, you know the petrol prices and what causes them to to fluctuate the, the sad reality is thanks to our wonderful government um they don't fluctuate here anywhere near as much as most places in the world because a huge proportion of the price is tax which stays there. So let's imagine petrol prices are in the lovely, wonderful world of a pound a litre. You know, and I can't remember the exact figures, but it's something like 80 pence of that. It's just tax. So if the remaining 20p is actually the oil price, related to the oil price, right? If the oil price doubles, you go from one pound, 20p being actual oil price, 80p being tax, to one pound 20, because your 20 is doubled to 40. So it's only £1.20, which we'd all moan about, I know. Whereas in America, who have legendarily or Middle East, you know, cheap uh, gasoline or, you know, uh, diesel prices, it would double. Their pump prices would better, would almost double because it's exposed more to the actual underlying commodity. Um, what changes the underlying commodity is down to supply and demand. You know, you have uh, COVID, no one wants to drive around, everybody stays at home. Suddenly the world's still producing it, no one wants it. Price then has to go collapse desperately trying to find people to buy the stuff. There was hundreds of ships just moored offshores full of you know oil products because no one wanted them. So, you know, price has to get to a point where somebody finds something to do with them or or makes it so painful the producers and the oil refiners uh, turn off all their equipment. And then uh, coming out of COVID, you end up with the opposite. Everybody scrabbles around realizing they turned everything off and now everybody wants it again. And now there's not enough to go around. So you put the price up to a point where the people who can afford to turn off or not consume or reluctantly do that, uh, go away and demand diminishes a bit to buy time for the supply to come back. It's all supply and demand. So Donald Trump did not single-handedly make gas prices cheaper. Uh, I, I mean, he'd take, credit, <laughs> he'd take credit for that, but I mean, no, not really. I mean, you, you can, the US, got you, if you want to get the depths of it, the US have a, have a big strategic reserve where if they turn the taps on or off on that, they can flood or starve well, flood or take off the market at large volumes, but they don't try and do that. They try and smooth things. So, um, uh, no, I mean, Trump Trump probably is responsible for moving some economic indicators around by saying stupid things or over-optimistic things, which in turn would have an impact. But 
And I think he liberated fracking and some of the other oil uh, industry projects. He he took away a lot of the obstacles for those, probably wrongly, and that probably reduced prices. But I don't know. Beautiful. He's a, it? Yeah, he's a bit of a distant memory uh, for now. Anyway, let's see. <laughs> yeah, I hope I hope it stays that way. I'm not a fan yeah. of either either side in this country or back no. home. Let's be honest. But anyway, <laughs> moving on. <clears throat> um, so you are in the city. You're trading. When did that? itch start and then what gave you the courage to pull the trigger especially having seen what your you know what happened to your father when he took the plunge himself so i i I always had this weird feeling i wanted to run my own business wanted to run my own show um but i didn't know what it was going to be in so i'd i'd set up various little businesses over the years to varying degrees even at university i had a little business making military clothing as in just like head over and you know small bits of clothing i support you know supply i'd thoroughly encourage anybody to set up anything that is limited downside and just learn you know even if it's a very small business you learn so much like you wouldn't believe some of my younger employees in their mid-20s and stuff i've encouraged them to set up businesses alongside working for me because there's nothing like doing it yourself uh you just learn so much um but none of them have been you know stratospherically uh successful i've got a tech firm that's been around for about 12 years i'm a majority shareholder in which is doing pretty well with the development team in poland and that generates pretty good cash and stuff. But um, yeah, I, I was, again, another notch of experience and it still pays out decent money. Um, but this journey with gravity building, you know, a new form of human flight was not inspired by a desire to make money or set up a business, really. It was just the latest in a long line of personal challenges. I just, you know, I, I hatched this idea and I, I've rationalized this by answering hundreds of different interview questions over the years. And I listen to my own answers and sort of learn a little bit every time I answer the question. Um, I, I, at the time, it was like, I want to do something different. I want to do something that is challenging very much with a human at the center of it. I, I love this idea inspired by calisthenics, you know, all the sort of crazy um, body weight training stuff. I used to get into doing flags and muscle ups and all those kind of things. I used to love that kind of stuff as a distraction from my day job, you know, to go to the gym at lunchtime in Canary Wharf. Um, and that gave me the confidence or the belief that you can train a human being to do some, such a ludicrous range of things from an airline pilot to a gymnast to a, you know, scuba diver. It's mad what you can train the human body and mind to do. So I thought if I can do a bad effort of a planche, you know, basically a press up where you put your arms so far back that, or your hands so far back that your feet come off the ground, that's a structurally nightmarish kind of position to hold. If I can do that, then I reckon I can lean on some form of propulsion and kind of fly in a completely new and different way. Um, I don't know why I should do it, but I just think it'd be kind of cool. And I think the conventional wisdom in the engineering world and aviation world is one of this is just not possible. You know, never carry enough fuel. You never hold the power. You'll never be able to, you know, a jetpack is the closest you can get to this. Um, and even they have got no point and they're all silly and they were back in the 1970s and all these kind of things. Every time people say things can't be done or they're pointless, I'm always slightly curious because underneath those, you know, stones is marked most of the time, damn it, they're right. But every now and then they're not right. And that's where new inventions come from. So I just hatched this idea inspired by human capability, inspired by my childhood, you know, building model aircraft with my father and you know, I didn't mention one of my grandfathers, Sir Basil Black, we used to run Westland helicopters now, Leonardo's in the UK. Um, and my other grandfather was a wartime aviator and civil pilot after that. And so, yeah, in hindsight, it's like, oh, my God, it's really in my blood. And I didn't realize that until the last few years answering interview questions it didn't dawn on me. Um, so I started messing around. And yeah, yeah, there's a TED Talk out there, Richard Browning uh, TED Talk. If you look for that, you'll see all the imagery um, or Gravity Industries. If you look for that on YouTube, you'll see it as well. I literally started this idea of investigating micro gas turbines, little tiny coffee jar sized engines, sucking lots of air, take a bit of jet fuel, put out a ludicrous amount of thrust. Uh, and you're not supposed to go and strap one of those to you. But um, I bench tested it enough to get confident. I understand enough about the physics about it. Um, and there's a clip of me with one on my arm, actually feeling very gently this thrust. And it's like, oh my God, it's just this fire hose like push of spongy force. There's no gyroscopic moment. It's not trying to flail around. It's not trying to set fire to everything or rip my arm off. So one thing led to another, and I ended up eventually with six of these little things, having tried all sorts of different positions all over my body in evenings and weekends and working all hours. Uh, and in November 2016, I managed to actually fly the bloody thing with one on each leg and two on each arm. And um, it, it kind of dawned on me, oh, my God, this if that works, I can make this ever better. And there's a real pivotal moment where actually my mother-in-law, which I, who I love dearly, um, but she's the last person in the world to get excited over horsepower, speed, flight, you know, and all the sort of 
manly drag car-y kind of interesting noisy things right and yet she came up to see a little demo it was only about three or four people in the world had ever seen this because it was in a quiet little farmyard i'd got permission to go and do all the testing in and she literally had tears in her eyes and gave me a hug she, it had such an impact on her and it's the same impact we just had you know the latest film crew yesterday um that were filming when we were flying uh and they just lost, the, you know, the film crew were just like, this is the most ridiculous, spectacular, mind-blowing thing I've ever seen. It does not look real, and yet it's working. And that was the impact on her, and, you know, impact on my mother-in-law about all those years ago. And I thought, gosh, I've got to try and tackle the even bigger challenge now, which is what do we do with this? How do we scale this into a brand and a thing that can generate enough income to be able to fuel its journey to where I think it can ultimately get to? which we're nowhere near yet there, but we've got a long way. Um, and that was the kind of journey. And I gradually spent more and more free time doing this. Eventually, I negotiated a career break from my day job, by which time I'd segued a lot away from training and more towards trying to inject an innovative spirit into the corporation, realizing that the world of oil and stuff quite rightly needs to shift you know, towards thinking of itself as an energy company, heating and lighting and making the world mobile rather than just digging oil out of the ground. You know, it's come to pass i think that was probably the right idea but very hard to move those oil tanker sized companies um and uh yeah and i just gradually exited and um it was terrifying frankly absolutely terrifying because at every step i was questioning my insanity wondering whether i was endangering my family from a financial point of view and repeating what i'd experienced as a kid it was you know horrendous but i sort of felt i needed to do it and i just about had a 51% confidence and 49% massive self doubt and kind of put a huge amount of effort and got there. And um, yeah, now as I sit here, you know, we're, we're four or five years in. Uh, we haven't raised money since 2017, which was an accidental funny raise in a parking lot in San Francisco. Uh, we've generated all our own money. We, have, we are a cash positive, debt-free, profitable business. We've done 145 events in 35 separate countries. We've got paramedic, military, entertainment, film, brand, work, you name it, a ridiculous portfolio and had a best year ever last year in the midst of the COVID nightmare. So I'm quite proud of it. The, the boring, the bo uh, the two biggest challenges, one is how the hell do you make a jet suit and, and make it fly? Yeah, okay, the big technical challenge. But the bigger challenge is what do you do after that? How do you not just put it on YouTube for five minutes of slightly quirky British idiot in his garage being a, you know, uh, you know, last item on the news and then go away again. How do you, how do you avoid that? How do you turn in something big and, you know, that made them more meaningful? And that's probably the bit I'm most proud of. Well, what really kind of interested me and inspired me is when I saw some of your military application test videos and then the paramedic, as you said. So talk to me about that. Talk, talk to me what you've been able to do with the suit. And then what are some of the kind of dream like potential aspects that you think when the technology is there, you might be able to do for those communities? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, it, it started with, uh, I got an amazing phone call to go and do TED 2017. That's where that very early TED talk is, is from massive stress, you know, never flown it outside of a farmyard. And now I've accepted to fly it in front of 21 media groups at TED, you know, with literally uh, Richard Branson, Al Gore and, you know, the world media watching. And, uh, and I did, and it was, it worked, but it was, you know, pretty lame really in my mind now compared to what we do. Um, but that's triggered event after event and which became fee paying. And then that just started generating really good revenue, you know, cause it looks a little bit like Iron Man and it's insane to watch and people just absolutely lose their minds. And, and yet all the time I was thinking back to my military time and even the minimalist I knew about the time around, um, you know, the minimal, minimal amount of information I had around sort of the paramedic world, I sort of thought, would it be quite useful in both of those worlds to be able to lift up a human being anywhere in the world and go two or three miles within seconds and land and anywhere in any weather and perform a task and have still have enough fuel to go home again. Turns out it is quite handy. So what we've done really leaning on my old Royal Marines friends, uh, we just innocently started showing up with their permission and doing no expectations, little demonstrations. And I mean, I'm looking actually stuck on the wall here from whenever it was. In fact, it was 2019, January, 2019 there because it literally stuck to the wall here. Um, did a Limston demo and it just kind of steamrolled from there. You know, you do a demo and then you get contacted by another military and then they say, well, does that, is that real? Can you really do this? Can you come over and show us if you carry this and perform that task there and fly back again? And, and they just keep getting bigger and bigger. And yes, the really famous one is the Royal Marines exercise where, you know, you can show, you can go and board a vessel in from the assault craft, um, that is in the position that it would be in, in order to go and do conventional boarding with a caving ladder and a hook. That takes 90 seconds if you're really super slick. And it took me like 15 seconds to get to the bridge deck. 
Uh, we Once you land on the bridge deck, you can free your hands up in about a second to perform any task. You leave the engines running. You can relocate on the target within seconds or even exfil out. Um, you know, there's a lot of confusion when members of the public sometimes see this sort of stuff. They think, well, you know, why have you not got twin mini mini guns, you know, raking the uh, target, you know, and what happens if there's a guy there with a gun when you fly in? Well, there's lots of boring realities about how the actual special forces operate. And nearly every single boarding operation, even with helicopters and ropes and caving ladders and poles, does not take place when there's a guy with a fag in his mouth and an AK-47 watching you do it. In both of those circumstances, your hands are busy going down a rope climbing up a ladder and you can't shoot back. This is un unlike both of those super quick. You can make your own decision to come, go relocate, whatever. And actually we have a version where you can also engage a target when you're inbound, but it still doesn't stop people online thinking they're, um, you know, they watch too many movies. Anyway, maritime boarding is an obvious one to answer your question, but any kind of special forces mobility where you're trying to get into a place, get out of a place, conduct sabotage, raiding, uh, outflanker, ambush position, um, you know, cover minefields, cliffs, rivers, do it all in conditions that helicopters can't even operate in. Or if you did use it with a helicopter, it's too big, too much of a big all eggs in one basket target. It turns out there's just endless applications of it. I mean, some of it's public, a lot of it isn't. And we've been all over the world. I mean, there's one, one of the most notable ones in the middle of COVID, a certain Middle Eastern country, a friendly one. I think it's most of the time friendly, um, <laughs> um, said, you know, they, they wanted to see what we could do. Some of their people came over. They were allowed to travel in the middle of COVID somehow. Uh, and they said, <laughs> right, come over. And um, and we said, well, we can't, you know, we can't get on a plane. They said, don't worry, we'll send a plane. So they sent a C-17, not just for us, but for our seven-ton truck, which is something we used to use. It's a 20-year-old horse truck, which we converted to move a lot of gear around the UK. And they said, yeah, chuck it in. So, yeah, we, we drove to a UK uh, private airport, chucked a seven and a half ton, 20 year old truck in the back of the C-17 and drove directly, sorry, flew directly to this Middle Eastern country, did a load of exercises and came back again. We've done the most ridiculous, <laughs> ludicrous things. Um, you know, even, even when we were allowed to travel in COVID, we drove our Tesla X all the way to Italy to do an, uh, an exercise and another one in uh, the Netherlands. Um, so, we, we yeah, we're only scraping the surface. If I can kind of give you an analogy you know if you've just invented a weird thing called a helicopter in the 19 let's say 50s really 60s and you've got this idea it might be handy for the military and then a war like vietnam comes along and you go do you want to lift men and materials anywhere you like and lower them or drop them anywhere pretty much you want i mean it would just be mind-boggling and in a tiny baby way pretty much every exercise we turn up to we create a little incremental version of that it's like what we've got nothing in the handbook that says if you engage get engaged by an ambush position that you can get the two blokes at the back to go and go in dead ground within 30 seconds be in the air and another 60 seconds appear behind that ambush position and privately take it out <laughs> you know that just doesn't exist i mean you're calling in an airstrike and waiting 20 minutes anyway uh, and the paramedic side of things though it's kind of um less controversial and uh, very easy to describe. Paramedic on a motorbike, cutting through traffic in a city, um, getting there to sort out, it sounds like your world really, um, sorting out blood flow, breathing, pain, triage, the whole thing. Um, if you imagine you've got a cardiac patient halfway up Ben Nevis in bad weather, you know, it doesn't look good, right? I mean, you know, we, we, you, you, your, your options are pretty slim, whereas we can skirt over the ground like we're a helicopter almost, except in any weather, and get there and get that heart going again or sort out that bleeding situation. And so we were invited by the Great North Air Ambulance to go and demonstrate this. Um, they believed in it more than we did, frankly, because I'm not a paramedic. And uh, the film is online, you know, Gravity Industries uh, YouTube. You can see it. We got to the casualty, I think, in that one in 90 seconds, and it took like 20, 25 minutes to walk there. Um, so anyway, we, we're actually, I don't think we're public on announcing this yet, but there is a sponsor that is now making this real. So we are already in the midst of training real paramedics to do this for real. And we've got enough funding to make it properly real. So, um, yeah, let's see where it gets to. That's amazing. Well, we, so when I think of the calls I've been on, cause in, in America, we're firefighters and paramedics together. So for example, you take, <clears throat> excuse me, anything where you're going to need ropes, whether it's the side of a building, side of a mountain, um, you know, there's this very, very long, slow process to secure these people to make sure they're safe to access the patient. You fly a person to that patient, you know, you're able to, as you said, stabilize, put a tourniquet on, use an AED, whatever is needed at the time. The life-saving potential of that, to me, is mind-boggling. Then you add the fire, put the firefighter helmet on now. Let's take Grenfell, for example. If people mm. were able to go up to a roof 
Again, assuming it was safe, assuming the seat, the the suit would allow you to 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 land. You know, well, 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 well let's let's cover that, right? Because because yes, our policy um, up until very recently, it still is really, is that, and why you don't see us flying really high. I mean, wingsuit testing and over water, we go pretty high, but we tend to terrain hug, and you can do that because you vector thrust fly, point them down, go up, flare them out, come down again. That degree of control is unlike pretty much any other aircraft, uh, and as a result, we can terrain hug, which means that. If you get a technical problem you never imagined or never foresaw, you fall over like you've fallen off a mountain bike, feel a bit sorry for yourself, probably do some damage to the equipment, and you're fine. I've done tens of thousands of flights, and I've only ended up with the occasional bruise, and yet shared you know, most of our fails online. Um, I mean, there's a, I shared a little compilation of fails you know, over a new year. Um, and that is because my innovation ethos is one where you take risk, try new things, but analyze what is the worst that can happen and make sure that you can survive the worst you know, failure doesn't mean you die or hurt anybody else or run out of money or damage your reputation. And if you get a green light on all those things, go and do it now. Stop talking about it. That is the core of everything we do and the core of everything we did as a you know trading team as well. Um, you know, but as I say, you know, take Grenfell, for instance, if you're going to fly up to that building, that fails my test. Because if you get a failure as you're just flying up a vertical side of a building and something goes wrong, you know, you're going to fall, you're you can't rely on parachutes, right? You've got to be very high and you've got to have quite a lot of luck that's going to deploy cleanly. I'd never want to rely on them. However, and I really can't properly reveal how we're doing this, we have for the first time in the last weeks even been flying with proper redundancy, which is crazy. So it would actually allow you to safely do what you're describing. Up until the last few weeks, our attitude for the military and the paramedics has been, you know, train easy, fight hard, right? So, uh, sorry, train hard, fight easy, the other way around. <laughs> um, so... So, you know, if you're doing um, exercises and you're doing day-to-day stuff, then keep it really safe. If in that one occasion you need to go over that cliff to get to that casualty because they are dying now, or your team is pinned down by fire and you've got to put up that high sniper position, sure, go and do it now. Statistically, it's probably safer than crossing the road. But just don't do it all the time because one day you'll have a problem and, you know, it's not going to be a good outcome. But if we get to the redundancy stage, then holy, you know, crap, we're in a whole different world. And then... The scenarios you're describing, and you know the scenarios. Actually, I'm I'm up in the Lake District uh, in a few weeks' time, test flying all of the major, <laughs> hilariously called most popular casualty routes. In other words, where the scatter scatter map of most common cardiac fall, you know, a broken leg, you know, all these sort of horrible, uh, you know, injuries, especially during COVID time, people tend to get. They've they've clustered them all over the area, and we've worked out that you can drive to the base of a lot of the valleys, and then only three or four different access routes up the side of these mountains, all, all over steep, but just, you know, grassy scree. You can zip up these to get to the ridgeline in like 90 seconds that would take easily half an hour, 40 minutes to walk, and then you'd be knackered. And the helicopters often can't get to those locations and let alone can't drop a paramedic. We can just, you know, deploy out of a vehicle and get there straight away. And as exactly as, you know, you're, you know better than I do, it's that first responder professional with the critical gear to stabilize the patient. That seems to be the most important thing. You've brought that patient probably at what, another 90 minutes, half an hour, hour, you know, a survival time for the conventional response to come in probably on foot and safely and securely remove that patient or get them to where the helicopter can access. So that it's really exciting. Now, what about the potential to be able to carry pick a person up and take them back down. You've obviously got the thrust and the, and the power to, to move a single individual. Is there the potential for that? And then also, you know, I'll slap two questions together. Talk to me about the evolution of the, the battery powered suit. Yeah, I mean, lifting people, you could do it. I've never been very keen on this because I think the, you know, the aviation authorities around the world would be very generous to us because, well, I mean, we're a bunch of serious people behind the scenes. Uh, we don't fly over people. We don't fly over property. We don't fly near other aircraft. We don't get in the way of other aircraft. Um, we're not endangering anybody apart from the pilot and the pilot is a professional. We don't sell this to members of the public without loads of training and we, we sign them off and all this kind of stuff. So as a result, we are we have less rules than drones. We have less rules than any other aircraft form in the world. Uh, and also they've noticed that our failure regime is simply down. We can't have a computer failure, which takes you up because it's all vectoring. So actually it's, you know, when you really get into the nuts of it, it's extremely it's very easy to make it very safe. It's also very easy like a motorbike to go and be an idiot for a second if you want, but those people don't get to play. Um, so um, in terms of lifting people, that starts to endanger that other person, you know, because you're enrolling them into something. You're also going to dangle them probably down below you where, you know, if you vector to their sides, it's okay, but there's a risk that you've basically blast them with a 
you know, jet hot air, Cook which you them. could, you know, yeah, people think that's, you know, going to set fire to everything. It's just hot air. It's not actually as terrifying as you think it's going to burn everything. You can't set fire to stuff with it. They use jet engines to put oil fires out. I mean, it, anyway, another whole subject. Um, so I wouldn't really advocate that. I think it's mostly, it's, it, the, the motorbike paramedic analogy is the best, right? You know, you don't slap them across your legs on a motorbike or sling them over the back and bungee them on and off you go, do you? You know, the value of that capacity is to stabilize and wait for the cavalry, cavalry to come in, having bought that time. The, the ultimate, my, my ultimate vision is when the world gets over all the approvals required for autonomous drones is you fly in as the casualty, having had the drone already find them and light them up. Right. You know, cause that can do scouting, you know, in case the comms is bad or the nav is bad or the Intel is bad on where the casualty is one of four or five scouting drones locates and confirms the patient whilst you're suiting up lights them up heads up display of which you saw me wearing. When I yeah. That was crazy. Latest, latest one we've got. Um, then locks onto the target, plots your best route. You hammer towards them whilst the drones lighten them up. You come in, land by them, shut down. You're now a human talking to them, administering to them, doing the things which I struggle to believe a drone is going to do anytime soon, right? Um, you call in the, the drone with the light now lowers down and then hands you any other heavy equipment, any other backup equipment that you didn't want to fly with, like more oxygen or whatever. Meanwhile, having, having triaged the patient, the heavy lift drone now launches from the roof of your Land Rover down back in the valley, flies up and loiters 20 feet from you. And when you unfold the you know, uh, foldable uh, stretcher, secure the patient and go, right, are you good to go? Because if we don't get you down to the you know, evac point in the next 20 minutes, I, you know, we're not going to be able to keep you alive any longer. That heavy lift drone, you connect it, you pat them on the shoulder and say, right, see you down there. And that takes them down. That step is terrifying to the authorities, right? Rightly, right? Because that could go wrong and take you up and just drop you anywhere. Um, that's the sensible way to proceed, though. But notice how the human is being critical in all of that. It's the human dealing with you. It's the human assessing you, the human making decisions, and the human stabilizing and connecting you to this terrifying <laughs> extraction facility, which I think will become mainstream in 10, 15 years. But that's a sensible way of doing it. I don't think it's it's attaching another human to a jet suit pilot. That is absolutely fascinating. So the battery pilot, so we have flown that. We have flown the battery powered jet suit uh but it's just like all of our experiences of batteries they don't last very long they don't carry much energy it weighs twice what a jet suit weighs and it's our lightest pilot has been able to fly it and it's about 10 seconds endurance so as the world gets better with batteries we are there to gradually improve it and it should be out again in march improved to another degree but it's got a long way to go to compete with the jet suit but it's it's happening beautiful well thank you i mean that's I can just see what you're talking about with the drones. It's incredibly exciting, incredibly exciting. And even we have a lot of automated um, devices now that will do CPR, that will ventilate the patient. So I could see you automate that entire hands-on experience. You put them in the Stokes basket, off they go, and then have another medic ready to receive them when they get there as you fly yeah. down. So amazing. Well, you wrote a book as well. So I want to talk about the book, where where people can find that, and then where they can actually learn more about um, the, the uh, company itself. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. So um, Penguin Random House uh, very kindly uh, collaborated on a book called Taking on Gravity. It's available, I think, on Amazon and all the other places around the world. So yeah, Taking on Gravity, it's the story uh, of where all this came from and the inspiration behind it and intended to have some takeaway you know, useful bits and pieces that have emerged during this journey. I mean, I, I shared with you already that the that ethos we have of, you know, innovation is about taking risk, which is scary, right? But it doesn't have to be scary if you manage the downside, make those downsides recoverable. If something is going to sink you as a company or hurt people or anybody or you, um, or it damage your reputation irreparably, um, don't do it. But other than, otherwise, if you cover all those bases, then get on and innovate and keep failing your way towards making that breakthrough. Um, you know, and it's pretty heartfelt that from my, my childhood background, my father, unfortunately, you know, taught me that lesson accidentally. Um, yeah. And in terms of seeing what we do, I mean, we're uh, take on gravity on Instagram. Um, we are Richard M. Browning on the esteemed TikTok. Um, we had to change that because of a weird TikTok rule. We've got 3 million people on that. I mean, it's it's crazy the following we've got around the world. But the, the, the one, if you really want to properly see a bit more detail of what we do, it, it really is Gravity Industries on YouTube. There's a, there's a decent amount on there. Some really quite high viewed films now and what we've done. So yeah, I'd recommend all of those. Beautiful. Well, Richard, I just want to thank you so much. Like I said, you know, you've carved out this hour. You're very, very busy. You're doing incredible things, but it's so exciting to hear some of the potential innovations. We, we tend to get stuck in our ways, especially in the fire service. Um, 
you know, they, they hate the way it is and they hate change. It's kind of, that's, that sums us up. So to smash that and then look at some of the potential, um, you know, technology that could come and truly make a difference, not only as a responder, but obviously the people that we serve, um, is inspiring and exciting. So thank you so much for being so generous with your time today. No worries at all. And actually the fire service area, I mean, that's one area that we, we should probably go and do what we've done in a many other realms, which is, you know, inspired by one or two mavericks who say, look, can you possibly maybe do this? And we turn up and go, well, maybe not that, but have you thought about this? And that wonderful two-way exploration process, you know, be really fun. Like even emergency extraction from tackling forest fires, you know, I mean, we, we can, we can move human beings extremely quickly and with very short notice. So, uh, yeah, it'd be great fun to come out and explore what we can do. And actually, on the subject of the US, I didn't mention, I mean, we we do flight training in the UK at Goodwood at the motor racing circuit. You can come along for a half day, day, whatever, and, and experience this really exciting form of flight. But it's all tethered, so you're very safe. Uh, we are hopefully resetting up what we used to do in LA. We've got a place in LA that uh, we used to do flight training. So hopefully we'll be back out there quite a bit over this coming year and resetting that up. So we'll keep you posted on that. Thank you.